Hello and welcome to episode number 135 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, February 24th, 2014. Well, to start, I would like to thank the folks who responded to my request for donations in the previous episode of the podcast. The three people since that time donated to the podcast by clicking on the donate button on the agroinnovations.com website. And all of those people, those three people were very generous with their hard-earned money. So I'd like to thank Michael S., Angie B., and Paul H. Uh, Paul H. is someone who I know and have conversed with in the past. Uh, has been a fan of the podcast for a long time, so thank you very much, Paul. I very much appreciate your support of the podcast, uh, both with this donation and through the years. And the other two, uh, Michael and Angie, um, I don't believe I've seen your names before, but I'm sure you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, and thank you so much for contributing. For those of you who were not able to donate during that time period, uh, if you do have some money that you'd like to send my way, there is a donate link on the website for the agroinnovations.com podcast. Now, I know that I had promised all of you an interview with Walt Davis for this week's episode of the podcast, and I'm going to have to renege on that and modify the interview for today. And the reason for that is because this interview is time sensitive, and it highlights a conference that has an early bird registration fee. And for those folks who are interested in this conference, I'd really like for you to be able to get that early bird registration fee. So I figured I would go ahead and and put that out now and give you that opportunity. But never fear, the interview with Walt Davis will be forthcoming uh, as soon as I have a chance to get it ready and publish it. I've got some other interviews lined up, uh, these interviews that are in the archive. Uh, I'm only podcasting every two weeks now, so uh, as soon as I have a gap in the interview schedule, I will publish the interview with Walt Davis, and I also have an interview with Dorn Cox. I'd really like to get that out as soon as possible as well. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Mary Stein. Mary Stein is one of the lead people on the 7th National Farm to Cafeteria Conference. This conference uh, is accepting registrations now, and the early bird registration rate goes until March 4th. So if you get in there soon, you can get that early bird registration rate. Uh, The website is www.farmtocafeteriaconference.org. I'll post a link to that in the show notes uh, for this episode. Uh, Mary Stein, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. So why don't we have you start out uh, by telling us a little bit about who you are and what your involvement in this Farm to Cafeteria Conference uh, is, and then tell us about the conference. Sure. So uh, my name is Mary Stein. I'm the Associate Director of the National Farm to School Network. And the National Farm to School Network is the host of the biennial National Farm to Cafeteria Conference. So the last time we had this conference was in uh, 2012 in Burlington, Vermont, where we had 800 folks from across the country who are working on farm to cafeteria initiatives, either at the K-12 schools, uh, in hospitals across the country, in universities, 
and also now um, in the early care or preschool world who are coming together and trying to learn from one another and elevate the whole movement of um, improving the ability to get local, healthy, farm-fresh food into these various institutional settings, and then also be um, the educational factors that go along with um, that local procurement, really have, helping people understand where their food is coming from and really building up the ability of these institutional settings um, to build a healthy, sustainable food system. So let's let's break this down a little bit because mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, people listening to this may be probably not so much the, the folks listening to this podcast, but some people may say, well, of course, food goes from farms to cafeteria. I mean, where else would it come from? But I think mm-hmm. what you're talking about is something very different, and I wonder if you could break down for us the current structure uh, in the cafeteria food systems around the country and why what you are proposing and advocating for is a shift from that. Right. So let's look specifically at the school food model. I think this is a great place to kind of provide that context of why change is needed. So over the last 50 years, we've significantly changed how food gets to the mouths of consumers. We've uh, created a much more centralized system of getting food from the farm to the consumer. So in that process, um, we've gone from people actually accessing healthy, fresh, whole foods in their whole form, cooking them, and then enjoying them uh, from a freshly cooked uh, uh, perspective. And when we look at the school um, model particularly, we... The, the school lunch program um, began in the 40s, and at that time, of course, the food was cooked in a, from its fresh form and served as a wholesome meal. But over time, we've um, gone to a much more processed uh, structure where the, the kitchens in the schools have really shifted um, to much more of a, a reheat type of operation where the the food that comes into the system is in a more processed form, just reheated and served to the children. Um, the child nutrition directors who are who are at the forefront of uh, feeding of child nutrition and keeping getting healthy food to kids have recognized that this is a system that that really doesn't work well in terms of getting healthy foods to children. And we know. We have all of the public health data that also is associated with a rising childhood obesity epidemic, and schools are really ground zero for getting kids connected to healthy food. So we're seeing a a really um, substantial movement of going back to scratch cooking in school environments, starting with healthy whole foods um, and having kids uh, really understand what real food is as opposed to just reheating um, processed elements that go onto their cafeteria trays. So that really is kind of at the essence of, of it from the public health perspective. The other piece of the puzzle is the farm economy perspective. Um, we know that also over the last 50 years, as we've had a more concentrated, centralized uh, food system um, evolve, that the ability of the small family farm to really make a go of it and have a viable um, business model has, has really diminished. The farm-to-school model and the farm-to-institution model raises up that local, small, medium-sized family farmer so that they have uh, opportunities for more direct markets within their own geographic location. They're not um, as beholden to to 
sell into this large, um, massive system in order to uh, have a have a market for their products. And we are, you know, across the nation, not just in the institutional setting, but we're seeing a, a consumer demand for local because people are recognizing the importance of this local model for basically the uh, a, a sovereignty type issue in determining what what their own local food system looks like, what they have access to in terms of local consumers. Um, it, it, it's amazing what the the consumer demand does in terms of making major shifts in our food system, and we're seeing that in terms of the local demand. Let's break this down a little bit in, from the perspective of can you give us some examples, some case studies of places that have that are doing what you're describing, that are making this transition that you're describing, and what are they finding? What are they finding in terms of the impact on the, the farmers, the impact on the children, the economics of it, and the difficulties of actually making this transition? Yeah, great question, and there's a lot of pieces to that question, but I'll try to drill down to um, a couple of examples. Um, so one of my favorite examples is uh, Burlington School District in Burlington, Vermont. There's an amazing food service director in that school district who has created a program that absolutely integrates local farmers within the school food service program, all sorts of educational opportunities for children to really understand where their food comes from. And the the beauty of this program, I think, from my perspective, too, is that school food is a complicated Animal. There's so many pieces of it, and there's so many different avenues through which food gets to school in the programs, the national programs that support this. Um, this school food service director is named Doug Davis in Burlington, Vermont. He's done an amazing job of under, uh, really creating, uh, utilizing all of the different programs and finding where that low-hanging fruit is in terms of integrating local foods into a, a, a kind of a complicated school food program. And Vermont is a is a wonderful agricultural state. There's so many small family farms, and he's figured out a way to actually connect them to this huge market of school food in Vermont. And that's happening all over the country. Detroit Public Schools has a, another amazing school food service director, Betty Wiggins, and she, same deal. She's created all sorts of avenues for integrating local healthy food into the Detroit Public Schools and providing nutrition education opportunities through school gardens for children within that school system. Same thing in Minneapolis. There's just it's so many examples across the country, I can't even begin to start naming them all, but we've got um, wonderful champions that are on the ground doing this work. And the piece of that that I, I want to emphasize, too, from the at the K-12 level is that uh, it's not just about the school food procurement. That reinforcement of uh, having school gardens within the uh, school environment um, education within the classroom is a really important reinforcement for helping kids to understand why that getting this healthy whole food into their uh, school lunch program is so important and, and it establishes a baseline for lifelong um, healthy eating. So in terms of the impacts, um, that was another one of your questions, what are, what are the impacts we're seeing of this? You can kind of break it down into several areas. Certainly the health benefits, economic benefits uh, in the community and the economic benefits for farmers. So when we're looking at the health benefits, we absolutely know that with the childhood obesity epidemic, one of the primary um, 
public health recommendations is, is increased fruit and vegetable consumption. There has been um, several studies that have looked at farm to school programs in particular and how that impacts fruit and vegetable consumption and children who take part in, in farm to school programs from both the, the healthy food in the cafeterias, the gardens, the education, their fruit and vegetable consumption is going up. They're asking behavior around fruit and vegetables. So basically they go home and say, mom, where's the broccoli? That behavior is going up as well. Um, when we're looking at the economic benefits, there's an economic benefit from the actual school food side. Participation rates in, in school meals programs goes up when the food gets better. That makes sense. And then when uh, the economic benefits around the small um, and middle-sized farmers, there have been several different studies looking at um, economic benefits of improving local food systems. Michigan State University is an example of a place that's done some great work around this area, and uh, the data is definitely showing a, a, a benefit to that diversified market for small and medium-sized farmers. So when they can have that uh, benefit of entering the institutional market alongside of the retail market, there's an absolute um, increased stability in the in the uh, economics of that small family farm. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about that economic aspect of for the small farmers. It's something that I'm particularly interested in. I mean, I think uh, I think it's an open and shut case in terms of this helping children and their health. Uh, the structure of the farm economy in the United States is interesting in that for example, I, I just shared with the listeners some statistics from central New Mexico. Uh, 99% of the gross farm receipts or this, the sales of farm commodities come from 11% of the farms. Mm-hmm. So you have this very small group of farms that are participating in the, in the overwhelming majority of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that's the case in a lot of other places around the country. Absolutely. Um, so does this actually – is this – something that actually has the the potential to really shift those percentages. I mean, sure, we're not going to shift it to Mm 50-50, but even if we could have a 5% impact on their participation Mm -hmm. in the marketplace, that would be huge. Yeah. I mean, I certainly believe so, and that's why I'm doing this work. (laughs) It's, this is, um, I think we're just at the, the beginning of this shift, and I think the farm to institution element of local food systems is a real driver in this shift because it creates that steady, stable market um, and actually a pretty substantial market um, in terms of volume for local uh, producers to reach out to. Um, you know, the, I, I think one thing that um, I want to raise is you, you bring up a really important concern that we the the um, number of small and mid-sized farmers that are um, part of the food system right now, you know, the 11% statistics that that you just shared, that's a that's a big concern that 11% of the farms are providing, and I can't recall the exact statistic used there. 99%. Um, 99% of the food. That you know is is there's a real there's so many problems around that statistic, and I think that's. That's exactly why this work is so important. We are, you know, our average age of farmers in this country is, what, 57, 58 years old. We are seeing, you know, hearing from more and more farmers all the time that, you know, they're ready to close up shop because it's not an economically viable model for them. We can't just 
say that, you know, you know, passively say, well, that's too bad, that's happening. This is a real problem. These are the folks who are, who are actually growing our food in this country. And it's a very important thing that we're supporting and creating systems so that uh, family farms can, can survive in this country. And Farm to Institution is one such system that I think is really actually moving the needle um, back in the right direction for small and mid-sized family farms. We're speaking with Mary Stein, who's uh, one of the lead organizers of the 7th National Farm to Cafeteria Conference. Uh, you can register for that now. I will link to that on the show notes for this episode. Well, we're certainly not going to solve all the structural problems with the farm economy in this conversation, um, but <clears throat> it's, it's heartening to see that uh, people are thinking of ways to create opportunities for young people to provide food to local farms and really build up the demand in that economy. I think that will really help people a lot. Um, let's talk about the obstacles that you see people are facing. I mean, if everything was as much of a slam dunk type of case that you're presenting, you know, one would say, well, why isn't this just happening gangbusters mm -hmm. all across the country? Um, so what is holding this back? What are the obstacles people are running into and how can we, uh, you know, learn from some of those experiences so that we can confront those obstacles with our eyes wide open? Right. Really good question. So um, many of the obstacles relate to what we were speaking about earlier in terms of the, the shift of the food system that's occurred in the last 50 years. As we've gone from a, a much more localized food system in the beginning of the 20th century to uh, from about the 50s on, becoming a much more centralized food system. And when we think about all of the pieces of that food chain, from the point of growing the food to processing the food to distribution of the food to the receiving end of the food, the consumer end, that system over since about the 1950s became very centralized. So making that, taking that shift back to trying to create those systems on a more localized level it's, you know, it's like turning the Titanic. It's a big shift. So that, I would say, is probably one of the more significant obstacles that we, we're working within a system that's become very centralized and we're trying to localize it, relocalize it. I, I think it's easy or I, I see often that we tend to fall into the pattern of, not, not necessarily the pattern, but certainly in our language we like to say, well, this way is better. If we could just convince people, then everyone will get on board and will do that. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that um, there are interests in place that benefit quite nicely from the system the way that it is. Um, and one of the things that I heard from uh, some of the local farm-to-table people here is that, you know, the local school districts get maybe a dollar, a dollar fifty a day per child mm -hmm. to feed them. And so it's not that easy to do that on that type of budget and right. inevitably they turn to some of the players in the marketplace who can do it at that price at the quality that that price offers so really it, good point yep. is it more expensive and you know are entrenched interests holding this back or is it just a lack of community organizing a lack of uh, parents being involved or perhaps it's all of the above yeah i think a little bit of all um your your point about the amount of uh, dollars available to spend on school meals in particular, and I, I'll drill down into the K-12 uh, school food model um, here, you're absolutely right. The, the amount of dollars per meal is very minimal. So therefore, 
the purchasing uh, the the price point that is available to go to the local farms is is small. So the uh, whole that whole point of economies of scale is really critical here. And then when we look at you know a much more centralized food system, of course you can get the price point down. But I think what we do know is there's a lot of um, unintended consequences of that. One is that you're you've lost the local economic benefits of the whole agricultural system in that local community when once you go centralized. So you may be the the uh, you may be getting a lower price point for your product. However, the the full economic multiplier in that community is really lost. The other issue that you raised was um, the uh, parent involvement. And I, I would say that that is one thing that we are absolutely seeing from farm, the farm to school movement is that when the these issues of the importance of connecting with your food, connecting with your farmer are raised in the school environment, there is an opportunity and we're seeing a lot of results in terms of parent awareness growing and that actually translating into a higher demand for local in many um, food purchasing points throughout the community. So it, the farm to institution lever can actually really drive the local food economy um, into the future. I want to put some of the case studies that you gave in context. Two of the places you mentioned were Detroit and Vermont. Mm-hmm. Vermont is a place, as you mentioned, that has a very thriving local food movement, mm-hmm. a very progressive part of the country, mm-hmm. probably not a good uh, representation of you know, the American heartland or the Midwest mm-hmm. or what have mm-hmm. you. Detroit is a place uh, that is kind of pushed to the brink of desperation and is probably at this point willing to try anything. Uh, I wonder, you know, when I think of a place like Lubbock, Texas, let's say, mm-hmm. where you don't have anybody producing food locally, uh, mm-hmm. the farmers are all big commodity cotton producers mm-hmm. um, on huge scale producing cotton and exporting it to wherever, you know, people will buy it, whether that's mm-hmm. internationally or nationally. And I think uh, it would be a really big challenge for them to try to plug their cafeterias into their local food system, which for the most part doesn't really exist. So is this something that comes after a local food movement has been developed? Could it be actually the impetus for maybe some of these large commodity producers to take a look at what they're doing and shift some of their production? Have you seen any uh, cases where – you know, not the extreme cases of Vermont and Detroit, but the more representative cases of farm communities throughout the country saying, hey, this is important to us, and we're going to shift some of our production to provide food to these local uh, schools. We're going to try to produce organically, those types of things. Is that happening yet, or is that not quite – are we not quite there yet? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to take a couple of approaches. First, let's let's talk about Texas in general. Um, you are absolutely right. In, there's a lot of uh, big production, big commodity production in Texas and throughout the heartland. That's going to continue. However, what we do know is that Texas also now in the Texas Department of Agriculture has a farm-to-school specialist within their Texas Department of Agriculture who is working specifically on getting Texas products into schools. Um, that, so this, this, despite the fact that we've got this big commodity system running, in the background, the, even in Texas, we are having 
you know, with, and, and local is defined differently in different areas, you know, in, in these small, really uh, high-density family farm areas like up in Vermont, it's a smaller geographic region that they're talking about local. In Texas, they're looking at the, the full state of Texas and what products can get into the schools from the full state of Texas. And there are significant numbers of um, products and, and small farms that are actually contributing into the system in Texas even. And then we look at what are the products that Texas does well. Texas does a lot of beef, beef getting into school from Texas farms. So, and then, you know, same thing. When What's farm to school in Alaska? Farm to school in Alaska is largely fish, fish to school. We've have, they've done a tremendous job of um, engaging the local fisher, fishermen and fisherwomen and getting um, those products into Alaska schools. So, um, that's one of the things I wanted to share. So in terms, your other question was around farmers diversifying in order to kind of meet this demand or this interest in local products, and that is absolutely happening. So I live in the, the lovely state of Montana, where again, you know, we do a lot of beef production, a lot of wheat production in the state. Those products, those are the products that are really, um, the state is moving into the schools more effectively. When it comes to the um, fruit and vegetable or specialty crops in the state of Montana, those, those are a much smaller production, and of course climate dictates that as well. But we do have farmers that are who have historically been on, um, you know, very large-scale uh, wheat production operations or oilseed production operations, who, for various reasons, are wanting to diversify. And often that reason is that they want to keep their kids on the farm and they realize the farm economics um, dictate that they have some diversification in their production and have some of their land on higher value production such as specialty crops. So that was, um, that's, that I think that's an important thing to be looking at and to um, see how this is moving across the country. And I have a lot of hope in that this uh, diversification of producers across the country is really um, going to uh, help not only in terms of their viability into the future for family farms, but also um, getting those local products to the local community. Well, uh, I'm so glad to hear you taking this track of an economic argument for the farmers, for the schools, for the local economies. I really feel like that's such a powerful argument in, in so many different ways. Um, and if we can put – the more data we can put behind that argument for, for a lot of reasons to help the farmers make good decisions and see what the economics of making these changes actually are and having some confidence that they're going to be beneficial for the farm economy uh, at their local scale or at their family scale, um, you know, the faster this is going to happen. So, so mm -hmm. I'm really encouraged when I hear people like yourself making these types of arguments you know, above and beyond just the kids are going to be healthier and happier, which of course is important, but uh, the kids being healthier and happier may not necessarily help keep the local farm in business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as we wrap up here, Mary Stein, uh, why don't you give us some of the conference highlights for the uh, 7th National Farm to Cafeteria Conference? People who are listening may be interested in going. Tell us where it is. Tell us what some of the highlights of it are. How many days is it? Um, and what people can expect to learn and gain from participating in this conference. You bet. I'm happy to. So I'll give you the, the stats first. So the conference is taking place April 15th through 18th in Austin, Texas. The name of the conference is the 7th National Farm to Cafeteria Conference, Powering Up. 
Um, this, as I mentioned, this uh, conference happens every two years, and um, the Powering Up name was given to this because we feel like this uh, this movement has really taken hold across the country, and it's really ready. It, it's uh, we're well positioned for folks to come together and really think about how to collectively power up the farm to cafeteria movement. So the we've got um, all sorts of activities within the conference. We have um, 12 workshop tracks that, uh, let's see, we've got um, local procurement as a track, we've got food justice, food hubs and infrastructure growth, um, farm to preschool is a new track in this conference, this go-round, there's a lot of activity and movement in the early care environment around getting healthy farm fresh food to the young ones. Um, school gardens, and then policy and advocacy, of course, is an area that we'll be talking about quite a bit. So um, we've got three different plenary sessions. Um, we also have a, 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 a pre-conference day on the 15th. There will be field trips that are lined up with the actual, with the uh, tracks that we're running through the conference. So the topical, the workshops are, I mean, I'm sorry, the field trips are built around those specific topical tracks. We've got a couple of short courses. And then uh, one of the highlights of this conference every time it's offered is a local foods reception, um, and that will be happening um, at the Whole Foods flagship store, which is located right in the heart of Austin, Texas. They have a beautiful rooftop, rooftop garden, and that's where we'll be, we'll be gathering for that big celebration. Um, so, yeah, and I, the folks who are expect, we're expecting about 1,000 people who are working in various sectors within the farm to cafeteria movement, so farm to hospital, farm to school, farm to preschool, farm to college, and these folks will be uh, <clears throat> all gathering um, in Austin to talk about how we're moving this work forward and, and um, be meeting one another and learning from one another, finding out the resources, what the updates regarding policy and that type of work are across the country. Well, if anybody is listening to this and sees that there are opportunities in their local community to get a farm to cafeteria program started or there is one existing that you would like to power up as the name of the conference implies, uh, then I would strongly suggest that you get on the website, farmtocafeteriaconference.org, and register for this conference. I'm sure it's going to be great. Right, and that early bird registration deadline is March 4th, so it's coming up. Well, Mary Stein, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, and thank you very much for the work that you're doing to help local family farms and to help uh, get uh, local family farm food into the cafeterias around the country. All right. Thank you so much, Frank. As I conclude this episode of the podcast, I'd like to share with you an email that I received from Michael S., the same Michael S., who recently donated to the podcast. Now, Michael is writing to me from Australia, and he has some interesting comments. He says, Things here have been hot. We've had two heat waves of seven days above 40 degrees Celsius, with temperatures up to 45 degrees, 113 Fahrenheit. Signs of things to come. Fortunately, though, in between the heat, we have had a few good drops of rain, and our native Microlena species are flourishing. Most of the surrounding farms have killed off their native grasses, through quote-unquote pasture improvement, applying superphosphate annually and spraying out areas to seed with annual rye and subclover. Well, thanks for the email, Michael, and 
glad to hear that uh, you're doing well with your configuration of pasture and a lot of the people who have been practicing many of these sustainable practices are probably well much in, in a much better position to deal with some of the conditions that we're seeing climatologically around the world and also economically. Just a final pitch for the Farm to Cafeteria conference. There will be a link posted to the registration page on the Agro Innovations podcast, uh, the show notes for this episode. So that's in Texas. If you're in or near the Texas area, you seriously may want to consider going to that, especially if you're a producer looking to tie into your local school or if you are someone who actually runs a school program around the country I'm sure you can get a lot of great ideas and a lot of great strategies for actually making farm to cafeteria a reality I've got lots of uh, great collaborations and coming interviews uh, in the works um, so please stay tuned to the agro innovations podcast um, please if you can donate to the podcast uh, the donations that I received over the past couple of weeks really will keep the podcast going and we need to keep those donations coming in so that uh, I can keep producing these podcasts. Reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share alike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host Frank Aragona. Until next time. Saludos. Thank you.